Excellent. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of James. And I'm so glad that you are here, each and every one of you. Those that are tuning into the live stream, good to have you with us this morning as well. And we're going to continue our series in the book of James, Genuine Christianity, having something that is authentic and real in our life. Faith is more than just a religious thing we do. It's a life that we live. And that life we choose to live every single day. We have to choose a life of faith. And and that's what really makes life uh, of uh, the Christian life genuine. It's not just the fact that we have a routine in life, though there's a lot of the Christian life that is routine. But it's the fact that it's something real. It's it's something that becomes us, right? It's something that's part of us, part of what we think about, part of the way that motivates us. It's, it's just part of who we are. It becomes our identity. And, and so that, that is something that's much more powerful. It's something that's a little bit more, um, what do I say, distinct than just a religious practice. A religious practice can start and stop. It can change or do as needed. But our faith, when it's something that's real, it's, it's something that we stick close by with. It's something that through thick and thin, it really doesn't matter because we look at it as, this is us. This is who I am. This is my faith. And so James is really strong on that, on having a genuine faith. Chapter one is all about our perspective. It's all about uh, our patience during trials and, and looking at faith with the circumstances on the outside working their way in. Chapter 2 is all about our practice, all right, how genuine are we in our daily decisions and the life, in our life and, and uh, what we are doing in, in our practice as Christians. What are, what are the decisions that we're making as a family? What are the decisions that we're making personally? What are the decisions that we, we make at work and while we're out in public? That's all about your practice, the walk that you have. Uh, In chapter 2, James really hits that. Chapter 3, he's really talking about uh, the power of our faith, uh, how we share that. We can either share that that power through giving a right kind of talk, or we can destroy any kind of power our faith may have by gossiping, backbiting, by really using our tongue for evil. And by the way, we learn, James said, that's naturally what our tongue does. Um, our tongue doesn't really want to uh, talk nice to people. We don't want to use our words naturally to lift others up. Uh, we just don't do that. That's why faith makes such a huge difference. Uh, when you have a life of faith that you're really living out, then it changes the way you talk, the way you think, and how you feel. It's just, it, and, and that reveals itself in, in what we say and the words that we share with one another. And so, James talks about, hey, a real faith talks differently. It walks differently. It sees things differently. And then last week we started chapter 4 about the passion of our faith. Uh, James begins to, to talk to us of, you know, what are you passionate about in life? How, how much passion do you have for your faith? Because a wrong passion breeds very difficult consequences. It, it brings about terrible things in our life and... and uh, and it really robs you of joy. It robs you of so many things. And uh, in verse 1, 2, and 3, James kind of hits that. Like, hey, when your passion's in the wrong place, man, it takes from you. It doesn't give you anything. It takes from you. 
But now in verse number four, we're going to study down to verse number 10. We, we find that uh, James gets a little more specific. Not only uh, is he talking about a wrong passion or putting our passion in something that's temporal, but he gets down to really calling out by name a worldly passion. He says that this is a worldly passion, not just something that is a love or, or devotion in the wrong thing, but let's just call it what it is, a love for this world, a love for what this world offers, a love for the temporary uh, instead of a love for the eternal. And so uh, James will begin to share with us, starting in verse 4, this idea of worldly passion and why it's terrible for us, why you want to avoid that, why you don't want to live in your life with a worldly passion. Now, I want to say something on the outset that I think is very important. The greatest battles in the Christian life that we face are not on a foreign battlefield. It's not with people that we don't know or we don't care for, have never been in contact with. The greatest battles that you will face as a Christian are the battles within. Passions come from within. Okay? That's why Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Uh, the love that we have here, we show it, we say it, it all starts within. And so the greatest battle you and I will face as Christians is really the battle from within. All right? So James is going to talk to us a little bit about the passions that we naturally have within. And then what do you do with that? How do you battle that? How do you, how do you, um, how do you pass the test? Because in every battle, you're going to be tested. All right, it's good. In chapter 1, the battles, hey, they, they test your patience. Chapter 2, your practice and so on and forth, uh, so forth. You're, you're always going to be tested. So, in the battles of within, the battles on the passion for your life and the passion of your faith, it's going to test you. And these testings are going to be there the rest of your life. I wish I could tell you you're only going to battle it for a week. And once you overcome it, you're good and you don't have to worry about it anymore. I wish I could say that. I wish that I could tell you, man, once you've been a Christian for 15 years, you've made it, you've arrived, and you're good. And you'll never battle uh, having a worldly passion in your life again. I wish I could say that. But it's just simply not true. This battle that we face within, this battle against a worldly passion is something we'll face for the rest of our life. Uh, it's kind of like the battle for the Atlantic, not, not that the battle of, uh, for the Atlantic in World War II was, you know, um, something that lasted, you know, a million years, but uh, it was really one of the most important battles ever. In fact, it actually started before the official start of America in World War II. It actually started in September 3rd of 1939. German U-boats began to uh, occupy the Atlantic, and of course it was key if we were going to help England or help Europe uh, to fight against the tyranny of Adolf Hitler. The Atlantic was, was key. And, of course, the Germans knew that, and they began to use their U-boats and occupy the Atlantic. And starting in September 3rd of 1939, they did that, and the battle for Atlantic lasted until May 8th of 1945. Six years constantly. They total, uh, they, they total the amount of deaths on, these, on this battle for the Atlantic was well over 100,000 lives. There was 100-plus battles that were fought in the Atlantic Ocean. 100,000 lives were taken from this planet 
in the battle for that Atlantic. It's long. It was arduous. It was difficult. That's the battle you and I face when it comes to worldly passion. It's tough. It's difficult. And James doesn't sugarcoat anything in the next verses that we're going we're gonna to read. He doesn't, he doesn't try to get in our mind like, hey, it's not a big deal. No, no, he's going to try to communicate to us just how serious and tough this is. But he does give us hope. And at the end of today, hopefully, uh, we can leave here this morning not only understanding what worldly passion is, but how we can take down worldly passion in our lives. So let's jump into that. Uh, chapter 4, verse number 4, it says this. It says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. What is James saying in these verses? Well, we're going to break it down and find what a worldly passion is and how to overcome it. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to continue to guide us as we study his word. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be in your house today. Uh, Father, so, uh, you're so good to us for allowing us the, the wonderful blessing of being here, the blessing of having your word, uh, knowing even now, Father, in our world, there are literally millions of people that have yet to even hear the word Bible or hear the name Jesus and the message of the gospel, and, and yet here we are in this place, You've given us your word in our language, and we can understand it, we can read it, we can, we can apply it, and oh, Father, how blessed we are in that. And I pray that you would help us now this morning as we, as we study the truth of your word, help us to not only understand it, but may your spirit lead us and guide us through the study of your word. May your spirit convict us of areas in our life that we need to change. And may your spirit empower us to live with a godly passion in our faith and not a worldly one. Be with us this morning, I pray, as we, as we just study your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. What is worldly passion? How do we overcome it? Well, let's notice number one there in your notes, the origin of worldly passion. Now, James in this verse begins with a very harsh and strong statement. He calls everybody adulterers and adulteresses, okay? That is not endearing terms. Uh, James is not telling you or calling you something that he thinks is kind and loving, okay? He is saying a very strong statement because he's trying to wake everybody up. He's trying to uh, make us understand that a worldly passion leads you to be an adulterer, okay? Now, think about that. If you're in a marriage where you've been faithful to your husband or to your wife, finding out that they've cheated on you, finding out that they haven't been faithful to you, it hurts. It cuts deep. And James is saying, when you have a worldly passion in your life, that's what you've done to God. You've cheated on him. 
and you're an adulterer. You're unfaithful. You're a liar. He's trying to give the strongest statements that he can think of. Because in the scriptures, the Bible says that as Christians, in Ephesians chapter 5, we are the bride of Christ, okay? We are the one that he has redeemed. He has, we are the one he has adorned. We are the one that will be married uh, to him with, for all of eternity. And, and James is saying, listen, this is how serious this thing is. That when you have a love for someone else or something else, something as temporal as this world and what this world offers, then you're unfaithful. You're an adulterer. And so he says, the origin of worldly passion, where does it start? It starts, first of all, with a friendship. It starts with a friendship. Notice in verse number four, he says this after giving that statement. He says, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? And then he says, so whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It begins with a friendship. Now, I want us to think about this because he uses a friendship, the idea of a friendship. Now, friendships don't happen overnight. Meeting someone new does happen from one instant to another, right? Uh, one moment to another. You might go to a store. You might go to a conference. You might meet somebody. You might go to school the next year and meet someone new. That happens in an instant. But friendships, friendships don't happen in an instant. Friendships take time. And usually, the longer the time that you've spent with a friend, the stronger the friendship, right? So, James is saying, a worldly passion starts with a friendship with the world. It starts gradually. It starts slowly. It's interesting because Christians rarely stop reading their Bible just from one day to the next. We don't just kind of decide on Monday, you know what, Tuesday, tomorrow, I'm not going to, you know what, not only tomorrow, I'm just going to take the rest of the year off on reading my Bible. That's usually not how it happens. The way it usually happens is something gradual. It stops being a priority in your life. It stops being something important. It starts to become something like, oh, I can put this on the back burner. It's not, it's not life or death. I mean, if I miss it, nothing's going to happen. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. And gradually, you start replacing that passion that you had for God's word, that, 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 that idea that you had of what this world has to offer, and you, you start becoming friends with it. You start thinking, you know, it really isn't that bad. This world really isn't that awful. What the world has to offer isn't all that bad. I've said this almost every week in some of my messages or almost every message, but that's the lie that the devil's been peddling forever. What did he tell Eve? It ain't going to be that bad. It's not going to be that big of a deal, Eve. In fact, it's going to work out even better for you. Suddenly, the devil begins to work in our lives and the natural... Uh, movement of sin within us, the natural passion begins to tell us worldliness isn't that big of a deal. And yet, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For 
the world passes away. It says the love of the Father is not in. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it is of the world. So the best thing to do, James says, is don't become friends with it. Understand what the world is. It's something that brings harm to you. It's something that brings destruction. It's something that robs your passion for God. It robs you of a passion for your faith. James says, understand where it comes from. It starts with a friendship with the world. Now, this is not to say, and I want to be really clear here. It is not to say that if you have someone that doesn't go to church, you can't talk to them. That's not what James is saying. Oh, they're of the world. I can't talk to them. No, 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 no. James is not saying that. In fact, uh, Jesus was described as one that had, uh, uh, was trying to reach those. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. All right? Uh, they said of Jesus, he's a friend of publicans and sinners. He's a friend of the world. And what they tried to implicitly say of Jesus was, oh, he's a worldly, passionate person because look who he hangs out with, and, and he just loves uh, the, the, the worldliness that's around him. And the total opposite is true. Jesus was trying to change that passion that people had for the world to have a passion for God. The only way you can do that is by sharing the power of our faith, and that's what Jesus did, the power of the message of salvation. So James here is not saying, oh, well, you, you can't talk to, to anyone that doesn't go to church. No, 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 that's not what James is saying. James is saying, be careful, because your natural passion that you have within you is to love the things of this world. And so it is within us to look at the world and say, it's not that bad. It's kind of friendly. Avoid it. It starts there. It begins with a friendship, but then it ends with a foe. It says, anyone, James says, that is friends with the world, you have to understand you're enemies of God now. You're going in the polar opposite direction of where your passion should be leading you. A worldly passion takes you away and takes your love away for God from your life. So starting with a friendship, something gradual, the world's not that bad. It begins to pull you, begins to pull you, begins to pull you. Hey, um, uh, you know, missing church, not a big deal. I mean, it's just one. Yes, but, but if you're not careful, one can become two, and two can be, become three, and three can become ten, and twelve. And before you know it, there's years that have gone by you haven't even darkened the door of God's house. What happened? It just started with a nice friendship with the world. Not so bad. But it ends with you being enemies of God. It's amazing how a worldly passion begins to work in us and in our hearts and, and what it does and what it brings about. Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this, and it's there in your notes. Romans 8, look at it. Look what it says. It says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. He's saying, so in our carnal, and our carnality, our love naturally is not pleasing to God. It's naturally for the things of this world. It's naturally to be enmity with God. James says, being friends with the world is enmity with God. Paul says, that carnality, that's within you, to be enemies with God to be friends with the world. That's, that's, a, that's a natural passion that you have. And that's why you got to fight against that. Second Peter chapter 2. I put this in your notes. Verse 6. 
and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should live ungodly. And delivered just Lot, and notice this, vexed with the filthy conversation, that's the lifestyle of the wicked. For that righteous man, he's talking about Lot, he was a righteous man, dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You see, Lot didn't just start from one day to the next being worldly. It started by looking and seeing. Then it was hearing. See, it says, first he was seeing, then he was hearing, and then he was dwelling among them. You see how it slowly just kind of took him away? He was trying to be friends with the world. But the world's asking for your passion. Your carnality is asking for its passion. And God is asking for your passion. And naturally, if we just go with whatever feels good, if we go with our natural feeling, we tend to think about the world as our friend. We tend to have a worldly passion. It begins in that friendship and it ends with a foe. And suddenly, you'll find yourself down the road as worldly passions taking you and taking you and taking you. Suddenly, you'll find yourself standing against what God stands for. Suddenly, you'll be opposing what God says to do. And if you don't believe that, just look at some of the social media of those that call themselves Christians and some that would stand for gay marriage or stand uh, for ungodly living. And they say, well, 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 God, God is all love. And now they're, they're literally standing against what God, I mean, standing for what God stands against. How'd they get there? He said, can a Christian get to that point in his life? Absolutely. Lot did. Can, can you begin to think that, well, I mean, abortion is not that big of a deal. You, you people are making too big of a deal of that. No, God said life is precious. That's murder. It is a big deal. But if you're not careful, you can start standing for things that God stands against, and suddenly you'll find yourself at enemies with God. Because you see, there's no reconciling these two things. That's what James is saying. Friendship with the world is enemies of God. A worldly passion is not the same as a godly passion. It is different. So we see not only the origin of the worldly passion, but then the opposite of worldly passion. So in verse 4, he says, this is what a worldly passion is. It starts with a friendship, and then it ends your enemies with God. And then he says in verse number 5, do you think that the scriptures say in vain the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, a lot of commentators have two ways of looking at that verse, so let me just give them to you really quick. Number one, the one way to look at it is the spirit is a spirit within you, and the spirit within you lusts after uh, being envious and lusts after a passion for this world. Another way to look at that verse might be if that's the spirit of God, then the spirit of God is jealous for our love. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 34 that God is a jealous God. And he's jealous to have our, our love and our passion and our total uh, surrender to him. And when we don't have that, it, it hurts him. I mean, just, just imagine if you're telling your, your husband or your wife, I, I love you, I, I want to give all I am to you. And they say, oh, okay, that's, that's okay. I mean, I'll take it, but 
Don't expect the same from me to you. That's a lot. I mean, you're asking for a lot. But yet, that's how we treat God many times. God is jealous for our love and our passion, and we say, well, yeah, look, God, you're, you're looking at this world like it's all bad. Hey, and you, you Christians, you're against everything. And I say, we're, we're for more things than we are against. But the world and its hatred only looks at what we're against, okay? We're for peace. But peace only comes through Jesus Christ. That's why the world can't find it. Now, we're for joy, but joy can only be found in a nice walk with God. That's why the world can't find it. Because it's controlled by sin, and so they don't want to walk down that path. Listen, there's so many, so many things that we're for. We're for loving one another. We're for forgiving one another. We're, we're, we're for uh, 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 edifying one another and building up one another. That's what we're for. The world is all about tearing down, but they, they want to take the one or two things that, that they just don't like, and it's just polar opposites. And so you get to verse number six, proud but giveth grace, grace unto the humble what James is saying. Worldly passion wants to take you away from God and make you the enemy of God. What's the opposite of that? The opposite is understanding there's a battle within. There's the human spirit, the natural man that is lusting to envy everyone else and lusting to to have the passions for this world. There's a spirit of God that says, hey, I want you to love me like I love you. He's jealous for our passion and for our love. And so what does he do? He gives us grace. Now you might say, well, what is this grace? What is the grace of God? Well, there's a reception of grace that, that James is talking about here. And grace can be defined as the power and enablement to do the will of God. A worldly passion, a love for this world will ne- never take you or lead you to do God's will. But the grace of God does. The grace of God gives you the power to do what God has asked you to do. The grace of God enables you to do that. That's why we need the grace of God when we forgive people that have wronged us. You need the grace of God. Because the world says, hey, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. They said this about you, you say this about them. They did this to you, you do this to them. That's what the world says, hey. And and not only that, the world doesn't stop there. The, The world says, and do it even more. So they know who you are. So they don't mess with you again. They'll think twice before they say something else. That's what the world system says. That's what the world system teaches. You are somebody. God says, you're nobody. My grace made you somebody. That's why Paul says, my boasting, it's in Christ. What am I going to say about myself? I can tell you, my passion within me is for the world. That's what I can say about myself. I can say about myself, I, I, I don't want to forgive anybody. I want them to recognize who I am. I want them to see uh, how, how big and bad I am. That, that's, that's who I am. That's why Paul said, but for the grace of God, I am who I am. God changed me. God enabled me and gave me the power to be different and live differently. He gave me a passion that's no longer for this world, but for the world to come. The opposite of worldly passion 
begins with the reception of God's grace. God's grace is the only thing more powerful, the only thing that can overcome a passion for this world. The only thing. The only thing. That's why Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The law teaches us just how worldly passionate we are. It's because of God's law that we know that we have a passion for this world because the God law says, hey, you should look out for your brothers. But this world says, look out for yourself. Make sure you're doing okay. Look to you first, then to others. And the law says, well, th that's being covetous, that's being selfish, that's being prideful. But the law teaches that. God teaches that. But then to not be covetous and to not be prideful, that's where you need the grace of God. That's why he says, where the law was condemning us, God gave more grace. James looks at it and he says, where there's that worldly passion, what you need is the opposite of that worldly passion. You need a godly passion. That starts with receiving God's grace in your life. The grace that enables you to move forward. And then notice the result of God's grace. Notice the result of God's grace there. In verse number 6, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We get access to God when we live by God's grace. We receive of him blessings and acceptance. We no longer stay enemies of God in this worldly passion, but finally, we receive a godly passion. We, we receive the empowerment to do God's will. And let me tell you something. The guy that's writing this to us knew all about that. See, James was the half-brother of Jesus. And we find, if you read, and I put this in your notes, in John chapter 7, you find that Jesus' own half-brothers didn't believe him. They had a passion for this world. They weren't counted as some of the disciples of Jesus. They criticized Jesus. They, they thought, why is he doing this? They didn't believe him. John chapter 7, verse 3 to 5 tells us that. So when James is talking about this, he's talking from experience. He's saying, that, that's, that's where I was at. But after the resurrection, Paul said, Jesus made himself manifest not only to 500 people, but to James also, his half-brother. And the grace of God came into James' life and everything changed. You see, he received the grace of God, and the result of that huh, was now a right relationship, a right kind of passion, a godly passion. For at one point in his life, James was all about, hey, man, what am I getting out of this? And, and Jesus, you've got all these followers. Why don't you, you know, maybe you ought to support us more. Maybe you ought to give us of, of all that money and, and buy us a bigger house. Come on, Jesus, you're the older brother. Do something like that. Where at once it was all about the temporal. Now James is saying, dude, it's the wrong kind of passion. He's saying, man, the grace of God has taught me that there's something that I ought to love, and that is God. More than this world, more than this life, loving God. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we overcome the worldly passion that we naturally want to have? How do we overcome this kind of thinking and this kind of of living. I want you to notice there in verse number seven, he starts with this, and that is by submitting 
and standing for God. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The word submit is the Greek word hypotasso. It's a military term. It means get back into rank and file. <laughs> okay, get under the person that's uh, above you, under the, their authority, under their command. So when you submit to God's authority, you're saying, I'm going to follow what God says. I'm, I'm going to make that the priority right now of my life, and I'm going to follow that. Romans 10, Paul said it this way, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Paul says, you know, a godly passion will lead you to submit to God's authority. That's how you're going to overcome the worldly passion that you naturally have within. Submit to God. Get under his authority, but not only submit, but also stand against the devil. To resist means to oppose or withstand, and the grace of God has given us the power to do that. Ephesians chapter 6, it's there in your notes. 6, verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. See, God says, listen, first you need to submit to me. Then, by my grace, I empower you, and now you can resist the devil. Sometimes we want to resist the devil without submitting to God, and it never works. That's why James put it in this order. Get under his authority first. Well, I just don't like the way that God says to handle this. Well, there's no better way to handle it. I don't like that God says forgive. How about, how about I don't forgive, but you know what? I, I can at least, you know, I'll tolerate them. God says no. I'm not calling you to tolerate. I'm calling you to forgive. I'm calling you to follow and submit. So when you submit, now you have the power to resist. That's why he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Once you submit, now you can stand. How are you going to overcome worldly passion, submitting to God, standing against the devil? Number two, we must sanitize and sanctify. Sanitize and sanctify. I love number, verse number. It says, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Okay, how do I do that? How do I get closer to God? And, and, and how does he get closer to me? Sanitize and sanctify. Now, this is important to understand. The sanitize and sanctify. When we wash our hands, we say, hey, I just washed my hands, and, and now they're clean. Now, here comes the question. Did we really wash our hands? Did we really clean our hands? Or did the soap clean our hands? Really, it's the soap, right? All we did was we utilized the tool of the soap to start rubbing our hands and cleaning them, and then we rinsed them in the water, right? Uh, see, that, that's what James is talking about. All right, when, when we're talking about sanitizing, we're not saying do these good works and then you're going to be sanitized and clean and good. No, no, no. When he's saying cleanse your hands, he's saying take that soap, the grace of God that you need to clean your actions up, to clean your life up. Take that. Cleanse, he says, your hands. Sanitize. Apply. See, so when he's talking about cleansing your hands, he's talking about your actions there, right? That's an action we do, cleanse, cleanse our, our hands. He says you, you need to sanitize that way. But then he also says sanctify, right? 
And there he's saying, purify your hearts. That means your intentions, your motives, your thinking. So James is saying you need both. If you're going to overcome worldly passions, okay, you need to submit, stand, right, against the devil. Then you need to cleanse your hands. If you're going to draw nigh to God, God's going to draw nigh to you, you need to cleanse your hands. Utilize the soap of God's word and start applying it into your life. God says, I need to sacrifice and give. Give financially, give of my time, give of my weekend, of my Sunday morning. Give, yeah, apply that in your life. Cleanse. Then he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking about your mind and your motives. Romans 12, 2 says, by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's purifying your hearts. That's, that's who you are, your motives behind it. How do you overcome worldly passion? Applying God's word in your life practically and applying it up here in your thoughts. And then I want you to notice number three, we must lament and repent. And that's what James is talking about in verse number nine. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Why does James say this when talking about overcoming worldly passions? He says this because he wants us to understand this is something serious. Now, there's a lot of humor in the Christian life. I think God has a great sense of humor. And I love laughing. I think there's a time to be laughing. I love joy. I love, uh, if, if you're like me and you like laughter, you probably like stand-up comedians or comedic shows. You know, you, you can watch me. Well, humor, there's a lot of humor in the Christian life, but there's also a lot of seriousness too. And usually when we're serious about something, it moves us to our very core, even our emotions. Do you know that the Bible talks more about Jesus weeping than he does about him laughing? Jesus wept on the way to Lazarus' tomb. Jesus wept when he looked at Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen under my wings. He wept. The Bible speaks about Jesus weeping. And in that, we see the seriousness of it. The third time you see Jesus weeping in scriptures, it's when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's saying, not my will, but thine. He said, Father, I don't want to do this, but not my will, thine. Serious. Years later, now his half-brother is maybe thinking about those moments in his Savior's life and his brother's life, and he's saying, I'm going to tell you something, when it comes to overcoming, you've got to take it serious. Overcoming a worldly passion is not something that happens by accident. We don't draw closer to God by accident. It's by giving it a priority in your life. And sometimes that means sacrificing things that might be important to you. Listen, I, I understand Many of us in this room, we, we work 50 to 60 hours in the week. And the weekend is all we have sometimes. All we have is a Saturday and a Sunday, and we're trying to fit everything else that we have to fit. I was talking with, uh, uh, with um, Adis earlier this week. Uh, we, we were talking about just his schedule this last like three weeks, and 
you're saying, man, every Friday and Saturday, the last three, we, we've had things. We had parties, quinceañeras, get-togethers. Like, it's just been so busy. And I understand when we have that, it's so tough, isn't it? And you have to try to start prioritizing in life. And man, it gets tough. Sometimes we have to make tough decisions. And God says, listen, it's serious. And sometimes we've got to sacrifice even what we love most. Even the 24 hours of rest that we have that we call maybe a, a Sunday or a Saturday. Sometimes we do that. God says, do that. I know we start late on Sunday morning, 11.15. We're not out until almost 12.30. I know. And God says, it's okay, because we want to overcome a worldly passion. And the only way is if we take things of God serious, if there's a priority there. We end in verse number 10 with the outcome of overcoming. What happens when we do this? Verse 10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. He finishes, James does, with what's so important about overcoming a worldly passion, replacing it with godly passion. He says we have a posture, first of all, of humility. He says now you can humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. You can live with this attitude and this heart, recognizing that God is the one that we are to uplift and to praise. It is God that is most important. It is his schedule and his kingdom that I ought to be seeking, not my kingdom and my schedule. You say, but, but I might have to sacrifice this. I know, and it ain't easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't be called a sacrifice. But Jesus, uh, James says, it leaves you with a new heart and a new attitude and a new life. For you direct your love to him, and he is most important. But it also gives you a promise of honor. When you overcome worldly passions, you have a heart and attitude of humility, and God gives you a promise to honor you. Listen, I don't care who you are, and I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. If the president were to call you tomorrow, President Biden were to call me tomorrow, and say, I'd like to bestow an honor upon you. Let me tell you something. I'm taking that honor. <laughs> well, you didn't vote for him. Doesn't matter. That's the president of the United States. That guy's important. I, I would just be honored that he even call me. And God says this. You overcome worldly passions, I honor you. I honor your family. I honor your work. You, you, you begin to see God's blessing in your life. And not all of God's blessings are financial. Not all of God's blessings come with these new possessions, no. Sometimes God's blessing is just a peace and a calm in the midst of a storm. In the midst of disaster. That's God's blessing. That's God's honor. He said, the world is going to try to abase you and try to keep you down, but I, I will lift you up. You see that in the life of Joseph? You see that in the life of Moses? You see that in the life of Simon Peter? You see that in the life of Paul? Old Testament to New Testament doesn't matter. 
God says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Luke chapter 14, verse 11 says, for whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's a godly passion. So James is simply saying, listen, let's not love this world and the things that are in this world. This world passes away. This world doesn't really matter. Let's replace that worldly passion with a godly passion. So that's my challenge this week. Battle. Battle that thing within you that says, no, 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 this is what's important. No, this is, this is what I need to follow. Listen, battle that. Say, How do I battle it? Submit and stand. And then sanitize and sanctify your life. And then what do I do? Lament and repent. Take it seriously. And you'll find that you will overcome that, that worldly passion, that worldly love that you have with a love that's greater. A love for God that drives you and motivates you. That honors you. Nothing like it. This week. Last week's challenge, hey, don't live with a wrong passion in your life. This week's challenge, let's overcome worldly passions that we might have by replacing it with a godly passion, something genuine and real in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that even this morning, by your grace, we can have a passion that overcomes this world. Oh, how difficult it can be. How it is a long battle. Oh, but Father, the blessings of overcoming and the victory, man, words can't describe. Oh, as James says, as we, as we overcome, we're made new. We begin to humble ourselves in your sight. We begin to live for you and uplift you and praise you and exalt you. And suddenly, you begin to honor. You begin to bless. You begin to move in our lives and how everything changes. And Father, that's the passion we want for our faith, a godly passion. I pray that you would not only speak to us, but help us, Father, to make decisions today. To say this week, this week I'm going to battle against that worldly passion, but not within my own strength, but by submitting and standing against the wiles of the devil. And ask to draw near to you by cleansing my hands and purifying my heart. And taking this thing of a godly passion serious. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to overcome this week. Help our church to overcome. Help our families to overcome. Help us to just simply see that you're totally worth it. You're all that matters. Your kingdom is all that will last. After all of this world is burned away or done away with, all that's left standing is you and your glory and your kingdom. Help us to keep that in mind. Help us to live for that. Follow after that. Work in our life, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.